0: We'll hear argument next in Case 08453, Cuomo versus the Clearinghouse Association. Ms. Underwood.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Under the OCC regulation at issue here, state anti-discrimination and consumer protection laws can be enforced against national banks by the Federal OCC and by private parties, but not by State Attorneys General. This unusual enforcement preemption, which detaches the State's power to make laws from its power to enforce them, was not written into the National Bank Act by Congress in 1864, and it's implausible that Congress implicitly delegated to OCC the power to read it in now. We know the N.B.A. did not in 1864 enact enforcement preemption against the States for three reasons. First, the words of the statute. Second, a long line of cases from this Court, especially St. Louis, upholding the power of the State to enforce laws against a national bank or rejecting it on the ground that the law was substantively preempted, but not questioning the power of the State to enforce a valid law. And finally, the wholly anomalous character, foreign really to our structure of government, of separating the power to make law from the power to enforce it.
2: Well, to some extent- uh, would you concede that interpretation that is not only the attorney general under new york's law but the superintendent of banks as well has authority over mortgage lending would he, would you agree that the part about the bank superintendent's enforcement could not be enforced against national banks well
1: first of all the bank superintendent in new york uh, doesn't have authority over national banks, has authority only over state banks, as we pointed out in our reply brief. So we don't assert that authority. Um, I would say that the, um, and the injunction doesn't run, against, in, that's at issue in this case, doesn't run against the superintendent, it runs against the attorney general. But um, I would but say But there that is the,
2: the provision that you're talking about, 296A, concerns the authority of the Bank superintendent, as well as the authority of the attorney general, is that so? I believe that the banking
1: superintendent does not assert authority to enforce in a regulatory fashion against national banks. If they did, um, if if the if the uh, bank superintendent asserted a um, sort of chartering or licensing supervisory regime, there would be a different issue. Now, just budget. with
2: respect to the same issue and. Uh, mortgage lending, where there's a concern about uh, racial discrimination.
3: Well,
1: the um, the bank super, the, the banking superintendent of New York does not enforce against
2: national banks um, anything. And you agree that that yes. that's right, even if the New York statute read differently, or were interpreted
1: or applied differently. Um, What's at issue here is the distinction between a supervisory regime. Visitation is a regime characterized by routine examinations, no cause needed, by chartering or a licensing authority for the purpose of enforcing limitations on — How
4: is it supposed to work? This is what's bothering me at the heart of this case. I imagine that banks, particularly right in these last few months, are in situations where there are three categories of borrowers. One might be a category of people whom you're reasonably confident in, and the second is a category of people who are borderline or less so, and they're also minorities. Now, where you make the decision as a bank to deny them the loan, it is sometimes is difficult to say whether that decision was made for a discriminatory reason, namely race, or for legitimate reasons namely because this was a person unlikely to pay the money back. Now, how is a bank to function if 50 different attorneys general plus the federal agencies all look at the books of the bank to look at the individual loan and to make that kind of determination about which, quite honestly, reasonable people will often differ? And and how how is that really a problem, or am I just – Creating that, and if it's really a problem, how, in your opinion, does the federal law deal with that problem? If not in the way that your opponent suggests?
1: Well, um, an ordin- there is a single standard of discrimination. It is the case that the that the federal standard applied by the OCC and the State law all look to Title VII law about um, uh, uh, a prima facie case being if, if I
4: may say so, that response overlooks the question. I don't doubt a single standard. What I do doubt is in the, sa- in the category of uncertain cases that 51 different individuals, 50 State Attorneys General, plus one Federal individual, Will reach the same result. Well, These are hard, and therefore they'll reach a lot of different results under the same standard.
1: There has been no such uh, multiplicity of of enforcement. Um, in fact, there's so much anti discrimination work to go around that having multiple enforcers is a device for. Okay,
4: so well, you just... deny the hypothetical. You were saying that my analysis of the problem is wrong. There simply is no such problem. And since there is no such problem, it doesn't matter if everyone enforces it.
1: It is already the case that under the Fair Housing Act, HUD is required to refer
4: Your answer yes or no to what I just said, that you deny that the statement of the problem is realistic, and therefore there is no problem in your view about having 51 different People enforce this. There is
1: no record of any such problem, and should such a yes,
4: such a problem arise, what
1: should such a problem arise? That would be an occasion for considering um, a kind of burden preemption that would be um, similar. On evidence of such a problem, that might be a basis for OCC to make a record and. Enact a regulation to deal with
2: that well, but it would be, o- be if it, too self. OCC
3: thought there might be such a problem. Couldn't it act in advance to avoid the risk that Justice Breyer's question uh, explained?
1: Well, its regulation doesn't say that. The injunction that was issued in this case doesn't say that. What the regulation, the rulemaking, and the injunction all rest
2: on is a legal analysis, not an empirical one. May we clarify one thing about the 50 jurisdictions? The the Attorney General from New York is not asserting authority over bank lending in Hawaii. So for each institution, I assume it's going to be two sovereigns, the OCC and the State Attorney General. Not fifty descending on the single that's single bank with respect to particular loans that 's correct and Ossie- well
0: that 's correct with respect to a particular loan it 's not respect to, with respect to federal policy about national banks around the country. It's conceivable, and I suppose likely, that the Federal regulator would want the same rule to apply to banks in Michigan as to banks in Hawaii.
1: It is, but if the question was would the, um, would the actual act of responding to a complaint or to discovery uh, burden particular people because there would be 50 people asking for the same information, that's not the case because the loans made in New York would be analyzed by a New York
5: enforcer. excuse me the same rule would not apply in Michigan and Hawaii anyway, even under the federal government. The federal government acknowledges that Michigan can have its own law the federal government and Hawaii can have a different law. all the federal government is arguing is we want to be the ones to enforce the, the separate Michigan law and the separate Hawaii law right
1: that appears to be the case in fact, they have acknowledged that the State law actually applies. It's undisputed. OCC said so in its complaint. Congress has several times said so, which is presumably why the OCC says so, said so in the, in the Fair Housing Act Savings Clause, in the, eco, in, the, in the Equal Credit Opportunity Act Savings Clause, and, and in Regal Neal, which specifically applies only to national bank branches but expressly preserves the application of state fair lending and consumer protection. You're just just at the
4: point of getting to what the blank in my mind. And the blank in my mind is when you said, but if there were such a problem as I had described, but if there were, then they could, and now that's the blank, then they could what?
1: Well, um, there are many things that they might — For example, just give me two a couple. For example, make some provision for — in fact, I believe there are some regulations that that call for conferencing and collaboration and consultation among the state enforcers and between the state and federal um, regulators to uh, um, avoid duplicative regulation. There's already um, uh, the potential with respect to state banks that are — Uh, supervised both by State regulators and by the FDIC. There are alternate audits in alternate years. I mean, there is plenty of precedent in bank regulation for mechanisms for consultation and uh, and collaboration so that people don't step on each other's toes. And in Federal criminal enforcement, for example, there there are many many occasions where there is both Federal and State authority to enforce. um, And... The result of that tends to be to get more extensive, fuller enforcement. People don't tend to um, both bring the same case. If somebody is enforcing something, somebody a different enforcer will attack a different problem. But
3: the, in, the, in the general, in the field of criminal enforcement generally, there isn't any provision comparable to what is now 36F1B, at least to my knowledge, and it's, it's set out uh, on pages 46 and 47. The text is of the government's uh, brief. that The provisions of any State law to which a branch of a national bank is subject under this paragraph shall be enforced with respect to such branch by the OCC. And that, that mandate, that it shall be enforced with respect to such branch, Sounds pretty exclusive to me. Well, you can't tell for sure, but why would why would Congress number one if it, if, if Congress simply assumed that there would be a a, uh, a dual system of enforcement that OCC could could say to the bank, you follow state law, and if you don't, we're going to go after you administratively, and leaving it to the state to go after in any other fashion that state law provided. If that was Congress's assumption, why would it have, have passed this, this seeming mandate, shall be enforced with respect to such branch by the, by the OCC?
1: There are two reasons for that provision. Um, the purpose of that provision was to confirm that OCC didn't lose its preexisting enforcement power when Regal Neal stated that's 1B yeah. and 1A that national branches would be treated more or less like state branches for purposes of consumer protection and fair lending. But
3: that's, in effect, saving clause kind of function could have been performed simply by a statute that says OCC may. And this says it shall be enforced There's another
1: reason in the legislative history which um, makes, makes it clear that it was a directive to OCC to mount an enforcement program which Congress thought it had not been doing. We know that because in the conference report and other legislative history, Congress says it's trying to expand, not contract, the enforcement of fair lending and consumer protection laws and that the law isn't taking any authority away from the states and that they're distressed at the inadequate failure of OCC to exercise its enforcement of You
5: don't deny, do you, that, that the Federal Government can if it wishes? Enforce the State law. Absolutely. So this provision isn't really contrary to what you're saying. You're not, saying the State can do it as well.
1: Not, that's correct. It isn't talking, it doesn't say anything about exclusive authority, and it isn't talking about judicial enforcement, which OCC doesn't do. It's talking about, it, it's direct, it it's, um, uh, has a savings clause kind of function, and it's it's um, hortatory. It's directing OCC to exercise the authority that it has. It seems to be common ground that it didn't give OCC any new power, um, because it would be odd to give OCC different power over the branches — this only applies to the branches — different power over the branches than over the banks, different — more extensive power over consumer protection and fair lending than other, other kinds of bank enforcement. THIS WAS A PROVISION DEALING WITH BRANCHES AND CONSUMER PROTECTION AND FAIR LENDING THAT SAID TO OCC YOU STILL HAVE THAT AUTHORITY AND YOU SHOULD EXERCISE IT.
2: BUT WE COME TO THE NEW YORK ATTORNEY GENERAL. I SEE YOUR ARGUMENT THAT THERE IS A CERTAIN INCONGRUITY BETWEEN SAYING PRIVATE ATTORNEYS GENERAL, OKAY, BUT NO PUBLIC ATTORNEY GENERAL, Uh, BUT ON THE OTHER HAND, the Attorney General starts out by asking for bank books and records, and high on the list of visitorial powers is the authority to demand the bank's books and records. So why isn't that his preliminary investigation, at least, why doesn't that Fit within the visitorial power. Well, bundle because you can look at books and records under
1: various authorities. Books and you, you can look at books and records under your visitorial authority if you are the supervisor and have the relationship to the bank that. A licensing or chartering authority has, and you're looking at them for no particular cause. Or you can look at books and records if you have a civil suit against the bank, and you're engaging in discovery that is, or, or for that matter, a criminal prosecution against the bank, and and ancillary to that, discovery is required. Or in Guthrie, the inquiry, the the, the looking at books and records was pursuant to a statutory authority for shareholders to look at books and records. So the Simple fact of a physical act of looking, or a legal act of looking at books and records, doesn't tell you whether visitorial authority is being um, exercised. Visitorial authority has long been understood as a whole regime of oversight. Waters involved uh, a visitorial regime that was ancillary to licensing. The earlier uh, visitorial regimes that were uh, referenced in the old treatise tended to involve visitorial regimes that were established ancillary to chartering. Back when corporate charters had limited purposes, the way banks do still, but most corporate charters, most corporate certificates of incorporation, don't anymore. So the fact that uh, books and records are being examined is neither here nor there on the question whether the visitorial power that is referenced in 484 is is being exercised.
0: Um, There is an historic reason for thinking Congress would be more concerned about States exercising visitorial powers than they would be about private attorneys general or private lawyers. This goes back to McCullough against Maryland. That's — national banks were always targeted by the States. They weren't typically targeted by private attorneys. So that incongruity doesn't strike me as terribly significant.
1: Well, the suggestion is made that, that, that 484, and there's some historical basis for it, was, me- it was meant to protect national banks against, against hostile states, which I guess is what you're suggesting, rather than hostile private people. Um, but actually, what it was meant to do was assign responsibility for the supervision of these new entities. There hadn't been banks like this, private banks which were nevertheless federally chartered. Before that, there was the National Bank that was at issue in McCullough against Maryland. And to exclude the States from asserting the authority to do audits, to do regular banking examinations, which actually one Senator had proposed the states be permitted to do and that was rejected i would say the concern about state hostility was apparently much reduced by 1869 not much after this statute was passed when this court in national bank against kentucky upheld the power of the states not just to tax shareholders on their shares but to require the national banks to help to require the national banks to pay the tax that was due from those shareholders in order to assist in collection. And the Court, uh, McCullough was cited to the Court, and the Court said it saw no possibility here, unlike in McCullough, that the State would somehow use its authority in this way to incapacitate incapacitate the banks or impair them by enlisting their help to collect a valid tax. Um, there actually had been some thought when the National Banks were first created that they would In the marketplace, drive state banks out of existence, but they didn't. And the story has been one, legislatively, of maintaining competitive equality between them, not of hostility. Um, So, uh,
0: do you want to talk a little bit about Chevron? Yes. Uh, Whatever the arguments may be on the merits, it's not clear to me that visitorial powers has an unambiguous meaning that would preempt the authority of the OCC to explain it to us.
1: Well, I'd say two things about that. 484 may have some ambiguity about it. I think it's not ambiguous as to the matters covered by this regulation. Visitorial powers have never been understood to include discrete acts of law enforcement by a jurisdiction that neither has nor asserts a supervisory relationship, the kind of supervisory relationship that the chartering or licensing sovereign has. So, what do you what do you say
3: about the quotations in um, the uh, the brief that Mr. Waxman filed? As I recall and it may have been the government's brief, yes. uh, which which uh, do have references to visitorial powers as including general conformance to the law. Uh, those are not universal provisions, but. They, they they were certainly understood in some cases well
1: the strongest quotations that his brief mentions several times come from blackstone he talks about inquiring into all misbehaviors of the supervised visited corporation those comments are made in a time and place when there was only one sovereign not the distinctive federalism we have today and so there was no need to distinguish between the visitorial, the distinctively visitorial powers of the sovereign and the coexisting police powers of another sovereign. No, but
3: there, there, was, no. there was a point in, in distinguishing the visitorial powers that Blackstone in the cases Blackstone was referring to, and those, for example, that would apply solely to, to religious or originally religious foundations like Oxford and Cambridge Colleges and so on. So there, there seems to have been a reason to understand the distinction.
1: Well, I think that the point about Blackstone's comment to distinguish the, — the point about the distinction between the charitable corporations and the public, non-charitable corporations is that it may well be that the sovereign — was enforcing not just the Charter but the laws of the Sovereign with respect to that state. It's but he didn't
3: need visitorial powers to do that. I mean, the Sovereign had that by virtue of the general law.
1: Yes, but the Sovereign might do it in many different ways. A, a supervisor might do it in many different ways, just as OCC here claims to enforce law not by going into court. I in thought Ireland.
5: that was your position, that, uh, that the uh, Visitation Authority includes the power to enforce general laws. The but general
1: laws of the visitor, of, of the sovereign.
5: Of the sovereign. But that a separate action to enforce the laws of the sovereign does not necessarily mean that visitorial powers are being exercised.
1: That's correct. That is correct. That is so our there, concern. So there,
5: there, there would be no inconsistency,
6: if you believe me. One thing that That's, pu- one thing puzzled me about this they're just they're not preempting any New York laws. Is that correct?
1: They're preempting — that's correct. They're preempting our ability to enforce any laws.
6: Anyway. We ever, do we have any precedents dealing with the question whether preemption of a right to enforce a valid law is, is appropriate?
1: Well, this Court in, for example, St. Louis, said that um, when the federal and the state prohibition were the same, that is, a bank couldn't branch at that time, or could not interstate branch, um, the, uh, and, and the State tried to enforce both provisions. They were the same. But the State tried to enforce both the Federal Charter limitation and the State law. This Court said the State could not enforce the Federal Charter because that was the prerogative of the chartering visitor, but that it could enforce the State prohibition, and it said that separating if the law is valid and can be validly applied, then it's virtually unthinkable to separate the authority to enforce it from the application of the law. This court said that in, in St. Louis. Um, it, uh, um, actually, it said it in, um, in Easton, which went the other way. That is to say, Easton was a criminal prosecution of a bank officer for taking uh, deposits knowing the bank was insolvent. Prosecution under state law. And this Court said that the law itself had to be preempted. wasn't clear exactly what Federal law on the subject was. The Court said there must be some Federal law in this area, but we can't afford to have conflicting laws. So it's substantively preempted. But the Court also said if it were valid it would be unthinkable to bar the state from enforcing it. And that is the correct way, we think, to approach this problem.
4: Could could, could the, uh, could the Federal authorities preempt state law, in your opinion?
1: Well, no, because Congress has said to the contrary. Congress has said that's why they didn't, presumably, why they didn't do it that way. Congress has said state law shall apply. So I think this is an area where Congress clearly had in mind uh, that there would be not broad preemption of this kind, that the laws would apply,
0: but that it well, but t- I'm sorry, but it certainly is preempted with respect to visitorial powers.
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: That just kind of gets us back to where we started.
1: It does, but I think that the I, I'd like to res- I'd like to reserve some time for a final, if I may. Thank you, counsel.
0: Thank you, Mr. Stewart.
7: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. To explain the threat that the OCC believes uh, the State's enforcement regime poses to the national banking system and OCC's administration of that system, I'd like to begin uh, by going back to a colloquy between Ms. Underwood and Justice Breyer near the beginning of the argument. And Justice Breyer raised the possibility that uh, a myriad of State attorneys general would file or would pursue similar anti-discrimination claims, and Ms. Underwood's response was there'd really be no problem because they're all applying the same substantive standard. And I think at a very high level of generality, that's so. That is, the Federal statute and the State statute both say no discrimination on the basis of race in extensions of credit. But I think when you get to the, the way in which the statutes are administered, there's at least the potential for significant differences, because
5: Well, wait a minute. I, this is State law. And if the state supreme court has said that the statute means a certain thing, and that certain thing is a little bit different from what the federal anti-discrimination law is, I assume that the federal government, in applying state law, has to has to take that difference into account, doesn't it? We, would the federal have, government, doesn't doesn't have the right to alter state law.
7: The federal government wouldn't have the right to alter state law. The federal government would have the authority to make its own assessment of whether the state law was preempted based upon those distinctions.
2: But, but I thought it's a given in this case, and tell me if I'm wrong in this, that the state substantive law is not preempted. You refer, I think, to enforcement preemption. That is the state's law is governing law. But the only enforcer is the federal authority. And if that's so, is there any other, in all of federal-state relations, any other law where the state as sovereign can prescribe But cannot enforce.
7: I give two examples from the national banking system itself. The first is the Regal Neal Amendments, which Justice Souter was alluding to. And and the amendments don't simply say that OCC shall enforce non preempted state laws, it says that those laws shall be enforced by the controller of the currency. But do you you
3: agree that that it is possible to read the shall uh, both uh, as, as an unequivocal grant of power to OCC? Uh, but not
7: necessarily as an exclusive grant? I I don't think so with the shall in combination with the passive voice. That is, if you had a statute that said a certain category of suits shall be adjudicated by the Court of Federal Claims, I think that would mean not simply that... The Court of Federal Claims would be required to adjudicate them if a case was brought before it, but I think that would unmistakably identify the Court of yes, Federal Claims. If claim you have a situation in procedure. which
6: the OCC, say, has very limited personnel, they only have 10 people in their enforcement division, for example, and Congress thought they had to get more, wouldn't it appropriate in that background to say, you shall start enforcing? And that wouldn't necessarily mean you're excluding states from also enforcing
7: I agree that if the, statute, if the statute used the active voice and said the OCC shall enforce these laws, there would be a better argument that the OCC's authority was not exclusive. But when the statute said, says these laws shall be enforced by the controller of the currency, I think the clear implication is this is the exclusive mechanism by which the law is I don't
5: see any difference whatever. In, in that regard, between using the active and the passive. Well,
7: let me give you okay. another example from the national banking system, and that's 12 U.S. C. 85. I want you to come back. I, I won't stop. I don't want
3: to stop you from doing that, but I want to come back to this. Okay. Do you, do you want to go on to your
7: second example, or do you want to — Let me just give you the second example very quickly. Uh, 12 U.S.C. Uh, Section 85, which was an issue in Smiley, deals with the maximum rate of interest that national banks may charge. And it says that they may charge as much as the law of the State in which they are located allows, and no more. And that's a similar system in that to determine the maximum rate of interest that the bank may charge, you look to state law. You defer to the choice of the state legislature. But the enforcement regime, with respect to administrative enforcement, is exclusively federal. It's only the federal authorities that can go
2: after But that's because it's picking a rate. It's not saying there's the federal law and it has this rate and the state law that has that rate. Here, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, a federal act, undoubtedly applies. Uh, and that is proper federal, federal law enforced by the federal authorities. The state law, as this picture is drawn for us, is applicable. It's substantive law, applicable to these banks, but only the federal authority can enforce it that seems passing strange and do you have an example outside the national the two you gave us in the national bank act where the state prescribes but the federal authorities enforce
7: well another example would be the assimilative crimes act which provides for the incorporation of state law with
5: that's that not state law applying of its own force just as your second example was not state law applying of its own force it was state law that had been converted into federal law by the federal government's adoption of it. Those provi- that's, that's a different
7: situation. Those provisions do accomplish in, uh, incorporation of state law as federal law, but this court has repeatedly said, most recently in Waters, that state law applies to national banks only insofar as Congress shall see fit to permit it. So if
0: you're concerned that, not with the substantive state law, but that leaving enforcement to the states would cause particular problems i mean there may be a state law provision that says you shall do this and the way the attorney general elects to enforce it is by shutting the bank down jailing the bank officers doing all sorts of things that the federal government may not consider
3: appropriate
7: that's certainly true that the state's exercise of remedial discretion may be different from the federal government's but even before that stage if you look at the letters in the joint appendix that Uh, the New York Attorney General's Office sent to the national banks in question. Basically, the thrust of the letters was, we have identified what we believe to be troubling statistical disparities in terms of the terms on which credit was offered to applicants of different races. If those disparities are not satisfactorily explained, that you may be in violation of state fair lending laws, therefore give us a wide variety of information that would allow us to determine whether you have a satisfactory explanation. And I think it's clear that had this process been allowed to run its course, what the New York Attorney General's Office was going to do was assess the bank's own criteria for making lending decisions, decide whether those criteria were suitable and decide, therefore, whether they provided a satisfactory explanation for the statistical disparities that had been observed. And once the New York AG is in the business of passing upon the adequacy of the bank's lending criteria, he is right on the, the OCC's curve. Well, per- you're
5: arguing for conflict preemption. I mean, that's a that's a different issue than, say, that the, the state law shouldn't apply. But don't tell me the state law applies, but only the federal government is going What incentive does the federal government have to enforce state law? Well, it, it has so much spare time after enforcing federal law that it's it's going to be worrying about state law?
7: Well, the point that's been made at various times in the argument that the state law basically tracks of Federal law, I think, is an answer to that question. That is, whatever incentive the Federal Government might have to enforce idiosyncratic features of State law that didn't have a Federal analog, here the State law in question prohibits discriminatory practices that are already prohibited by Federal law. So whether OCC and HUD set out to enforce State law, if they are vigorously enforcing Federal law, they will, in the course of doing that, indicate the state's prerogatives. Is, is, there
3: any, is there any legislative history, whatever, to the effect at the time 36F1B was adopted, uh, to the effect that its effect was to preempt State uh, Enforcement Authority?
7: They, they don't say it in with quite that degree of clarity, but there is a colloquy quoted in the, the brief for the Clearinghouse between, I believe, it's uh, Senator D'Amato it it, it, Senator D'Amato and Senator D'Amato. And like it, is to, it is to the effect that Senator D'Amato expresses the concern that this may subject the, the national banks in their branching activities to State supervision, and the response is That's not the case. That will happen with branches of state banks, but with respect to branches of national banks, the supervision will be by the OCC. Yeah, but the the problem I have with that
3: as a a kind of clear statement uh, of of something which would be extraordinary uh, is that it talks in terms of supervision. It doesn't use the, my recollection is, it doesn't use the magic word enforcement. And I would have thought that if, in the course of that colloquy, uh, the, the statement had been made, the States will not have the authority to enforce this, that there would have been rather a dust uh, And there wasn't. It's kind of a dog-that-didn't-bark argument. Uh, and therefore, if, if there is uncertainty as to how to construe 36F1B, I'm not sure that, I I don't think the legislative history supports your exclusivity
7: view. Well, Section 36F1A refers to a very limited category of state laws that include state fair lending laws and said these laws will not be preempted unless they would be preempted with respect to national banks generally. And then 36F1B says the laws in that preceding paragraph shall be enforced by the controller of the currency. And so Even if the colloquy used the term supervision, the the focus of the statutory language was was on a pretty narrow category of laws. I'd like also to refer the Court to uh, 12 U.S.C. 484B, which I think is relevant here. And it's on page 1A of the appendix to the government's brief. And it is an express exception to the general rule against the uh, exercise of visitorial powers. And it says, notwithstanding subsection A of this section, Lawfully authorized State auditors and examiners may, at reasonable times and upon reasonable notice to a bank, review its records solely to ensure compliance with applicable State, unclaimed property, or sheet laws. Now, now the the basic thrust of-
3: does that mean, (coughs) when they they say review records, does that mean that the, the State auditors, in effect, can walk into the bank- as distinguished from what we have here, in which the bank is being requested to produce excerpts from records,
7: I think that would be the implication of the provision. But the, the significant point for our purposes is that it refers solely to ensure compliance with applicable state unclaimed property or street laws. Let me ask you this question: That's the street laws. Clearly, they can look at it. But what
6: if this New York was trying to enforce its discrimination laws in an employment context or in a context where they said you were charging minority? Uh, depositors uh, giving less lower rates of interest, than you give a creation deposit. Would they, have, would the a, a, a discrimination on the rates of interest paid on deposits? Assume that was the question. Would you, would you make the same argument if that was what New York had alleged?
7: Yes, we would, because that would be going to uh, the bank's federally authorized bank. All it would
6: have to just look at the records. You can tell from the records whether people of different classes are paying different or getting different uh, rates on their deposits.
7: I mean. If, it might be that in that instance the discrimination would be, would be unlikely to persist but it the, the would basic be unlikely
6: to persist maybe it's an unlikely example but you're suggesting that that would also interfere with the controller's
7: ability to regulate the banks yes the the, the way the regulation is written it speaks to state efforts to enforce laws that are directed at the, the
2: banks federally
7: authorized so bank you case. make
2: the same answer whether um, justice Stevens mentioned employment discrimination state has reason to believe the bank is discriminating in its employment policies and it wants to examine certain employment records in that connection. Would you say also that although New York can prescribe its anti-discrimination in employment law, it can't enforce it?
7: Now, the regulation does sweep more categorically with respect to inspection of bank records. New York would not be forbidden to file lawsuits to enforce its employment discrimination Does law. Does any of
3: this bring us back to the colloquy you began, began with between uh, Justice Breyer and Ms. Underwood uh, with reference to many States? Uh, Yes, it certainly You you began on that, and I never did hear
7: I mean, part of the point I was trying to make was even if the substantive State law on its face is not preempted because it is identical to the Federal law, once we get to the enforcement stage where the relevant enforcement agency is saying your statistical disparity constitutes a violation because it is not justified by sound banking practices, inevitably uh, that judgment is going to put the State regulator in the business of doing what OCC does and if 50 different State Attorneys General have slightly different ideas of what constitutes an adequate banking justification for lending criteria that produce a statistical disparity, then the problem is multiplied. It's the, the
5: conflict preemption, and that goes to the to the law. You shouldn't have a separate state law that, that provides a separate standard that conflicts with the Federal standard. So you preempt the law. You don't say the law is in effect, but the State can't enforce it. That's a weird way to solve that problem.
7: Well the, the other point I would make about this is that it, it isn't accurate to say that under the Federal regime the State is entirely disabled from enforcing its own fair lending law. As Ms. Underwood alluded to in the the opening part of the argument and as the petitioner's reply brief, brief explains at pages 25 and 26, the Fair Housing Act does contain a mechanism by which a State agency, in the case of New York, it's the Division of Human Resources, can be certified by HUD to enforce uh, the State Fair Lending laws. But that certification entails two different steps. First, HUD has to determine that the substantive State law is, I believe it's substantially equivalent to the comparable Federal law. And second, HUD monitors the performance of the enforcing agency, the particular agency under State law uh, that carries out that responsibility. And HUD can thereby make sure that enforcement as well as the substance of the law are consistent with Federal law.
0: Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Waxman?
8: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Section 484 plainly has preemptive effect, and what it preempts, quoting this Court's decision in Waters, is quote, the State's investigative and enforcement machinery.
2: Ms. Close Mr. Quote. Mr. Waxman, your mention of Waters, which has been mentioned in the briefs, I think is an inaccurate description. Of what that opinion held. Waters dealt with a regime that was indisputably visitorial. It was a registration regime where annual fees were paid, annual reports were filed with the State um, Financial um, Agency and the State. Monitor could go into a a lending organization any time, for any reason, without any suspicion of wrongdoing. The only thing, so everyone agreed that was a visitorial regime. The sole question was whether the banks, the national bank's operating subsidiary was to be equated with a division of the national bank. That was the only question. divided the
8: Court. Oh, I, I quite agree, and I did not mean to suggest that this Court's decision in Waters, you know, the holding in Waters, concludes the outcome of this case. But this Court, in Section 2A of Waters, and we did have a State statutory regime that dealt, yes, with licensure, but also with examination, supervision, and enforcement, including judicial enforcement, this Court repeatedly described that what was preempted Is, and this goes to, I think, a point that Justice Scalia was making, was not substantive preemption. There are substantive preemption provisions that are addressed in other sections of the Act, including the one that was at issue in Smiley. What is exempted, this Court said again and again, is the State's enforcement and investment and investigative and enforcement machinery, or its examination and
2: enforcement authority. And And that was in the context of a state law that says mortgage lending institution, you may not lend unless you register and do all the rest. That was the context of Waters, Um, and I do not think that excerpts from that opinion should be taken out of that context, which was you can't be in this business unless you register with us.
8: The question in the case is whether or not what the Attorney General here sought to do is the exercise of a visitorial power. Exactly. Can, I, can I
4: take what Justice Ginsburg just said and give you a thought that I'm interested in your response to? What, I haven't seen the letter from the Attorney General. Is the whole thing in the record?
8: Are, the letters are in the record in the Joint Appendix. Okay.
4: Now, reading Judge Parker's description of it, it seemed to me that what he'd said was that there are statistical disparities between interest rates and race. Well, as long as most unfortunately income is correlated with race, with minorities being towards the bottom, of course such statistical disparities will exist, some legitimate, some not. So if the only basis for getting this information is that allegation? It's hard to see how this differs from the case that Justice Ginsburg put. Yes, but I mean, it might be quite a different case if they had gone into court and found individuals who were really getting different interest rates and who really seemed very, very similar, but for race. But at that point, they'd have to go get this same information because that's where they would find whether that prima facie case was right or wrong. Yes. You see what I'm doing? I'm dividing I, the matter vertically instead of, say, horizontally. And I'd like I want to know if that's
8: possible. I'd like to address both the vertical and horizontal axes of what I perceive to be your question. One is the distinction that this court drew in Guthrie, where it said there is a big, is a huge distinction in determining what's a visitorial power between a private individual seeking to vindicate a deprivation of his or her traditional property right, which is what was at issue there. And what, the court, what this Court said was the public right of visitation, which it also ex- explained was the State's, quote, enforcing observance of its laws and regulations. There is a public and private distinction, and visitation deals with the former. Sure there is. With what, the what, sovereign.
5: What, would you acknowledge, Counsel, that there is — a difference between enforcing state laws through visitation and enforcing state laws apart from visitation. And what Waters involved was enforcing state laws through visitation. Of course, you, you can do that through, through, through visitation powers, Just but you can also do it apart from that by bringing a lawsuit or whatever.
8: Justice Pryor, I'll get to the horizontal axis in a moment. I'm afraid oh, I, I'm going to forget. I, did I skip over no, an I, axis
5: here? I, I didn't. I didn't mean.
8: Let to. me go. Let me go to your axis first, which is to say, anything that is a visitorial power can also be interpreted as an, a police or enforcement power. And what Congress had in mind, this is legislation that was born in the crucible of the Civil War, and what Congress sought to preempt was state executive action, state examination and enforcement action with respect to these newly created, very important federal instrumentalities. That was historically done, this Court explained in Guthrie and and Chancellor Kent and Blackstone and many other authorities agree, was historically done through access to the Courts. And in fact, what Dean Pound in his oft-cited article about visitatorial powers said was he said, and this is, this is discussed at pages 16 through 18 of the amicus brief of the Financial Services Roundtable, what he called, quote, the leading case for visitatorial powers in equity was a case called Attorney General versus Chicago and Northwest Railroad, decided in 1874, in which the Attorney General of Wisconsin was seeking to require this railroad to comply with the State's mandated rate schedule. That was a visitorial power, even though you could also call it a law enforcement power. Now, Justice Breyer, on the horizontality of your question, this is not a suit in which the New York Attorney General is trying to enforce its employment discrimination laws or its health laws or its zoning laws. The Attorney General wants the loan records of national banks. And he wants them so that he can evaluate for himself whether the banks are making proper judgments about how to market and how to price their loans. Mr. Waxman, let's for that a minute case. with this. What
6: if before writing the letter, the Attorney General of New York said, We have conducted 500 interviews with people who have borrowed money from you, and on the basis of all those interviews, we've drawn these tentative conclusions that there's discrimination? Uh, We would like to give you an opportunity to explain all of this by showing us your records. And they say, no, we won't do it. Would they then be preempted from bringing their lawsuit?
8: Yes, they would. Even though they
6: didn't have to look at any bank record to make their prima facie case?
8: Well, the, the, the OCC in the preamble to its regulations does draw a distinction between State enforcement actions and a pure State declaratory judgment, quote, as to the meaning of the applicable law. This is a case that in which
6: — No, I'm asking about a hypothetical. I understand what your argument here, but I just don't understand how your argument would apply to my hypothetical, but I think the regulation would apply to the hypothetical.
8: Well, this is — this case is certainly in the core, but a, a a state authority, whether it's the state banking commissioner, the state human rights commissioner, or the — State Attorney General, or, for that matter, another Federal Government authority that seeks to call a national bank to account for the manner in which it is conducting an expressly designated, allocated banking power is an exercise of visitorial
6: power. But it isn't. It isn't. It it doesn't even want to look at your books. It just wants to prove it by people who have been borrowing money and compare them with Among them, they can interview orally.
8: I don't understand why that would be visitorial power. The the state's enforcement of any law that is directed at a national bank's authorized banking powers is a visitorial power. And the fact that it may also be characterized as a police power or a lawsuit is – is interesting, but not what's at stake. What Congress aimed at, Congress in 1864 knew, the Supreme Court said, Blackstone and Kent had said, that visitorial powers on civil corporations are exercised, A, by the sovereign, not by a private individual, and B, are almost always exercised through access to the courts. Whether that they're invoking the court's authority to seek records or not—that was the historical core of what visitorial powers. So thought.
2: one could say yes, the federal authorities have visitorial powers and they can go to court. But we have here that the state can prescribe not a supervisory regime, but a fair lending, and the state wants to go into court and saying the bank is violating the State substantive law, which is applicable. That's
8: correct. And a sovereign taking a national bank into court with respect to not any old general law, but with respect to the conduct of its specifically authorized national banking powers is the exercise of visitorial powers. That no, was the is, reason is for the, the courts exor- of justice exception.
3: Is it the exercise of visitorial powers, or is it an action which covers the same subject that an exercise of visitorial powers would do? Let me, let me propose a distinction, and I, I don't know whether this is sound. You, I mean, I, I, you tell me. I would suppose that if uh, someone with visitorial powers dealing with discrimination and lending brought an action against the bank or tried to enforce it against the bank and couldn't do so in any other way than by going to court, it would go to court and it would say, Court, tell this institution that I have some responsibility for to obey the law. But I also assume that if the Attorney General of New York, which is not a visitor, enforces the law, it would go into court and say, Tell them to obey the law and to pay damages or recompense of some sort to these people uh, whom they have wronged. The subject matter of each suit is the same. But the relief that is being requested and the judicial power that is being exercised is different in these two cases. Is that a fair distinction?
8: I don't think — I think that if I understood your question, and I may not have, if a suit by a private individual or a group of private individuals seeking to vindicate the deprivation of a private traditional right is not visitorial, but if the State either directly in the enforcement of its general laws or seeking to protect the people of its State goes into court or asks for records or anything else, it is exercising a traditional visitorial power. Matt, while I have your attention, may I also go back to your question about 36F and Regal Neal? Because mm-hmm. there is yet — there are other additional indicators that when the Congress said in 36F that these State laws shall be enforced by the OCC. It was mandatory and exclusive. First of all, the colloquy that was discussed and is reported in our brief, I think at Page 26, does use the word enforce as well as supervise, but more to the point — That's the one
3: with Senator DeMoto? Yes.
8: Regal-Neal — and here's the the most important point. That provision that we've been looking at had a cognate — had an analog that was also enforced. Regal-Neal basically said out-of-state banks can now branch bank. When they do so, they're subject to these four categories of state laws. The provision we've been looking at, which was Section 102, said, with respect to the enforcement of those laws, the OCC shall enforce it. But Section 105 said, when the out-of-state bank is a state-chartered bank, and this is reported, I think it's at Section 1820H of Title 12, when it's an out of when it's a state-chartered bank, the state authorities of the host state shall enforce the laws. So it, it enacted a dual regime that demonstrates exactly what Congress had in mind, which is that there would be one regulator making the kind of judgments about, okay, there's a disparity, but let's look at credit history. Let's look at the the loan to equity value. Let's look at income versus debt incurred. And all these factors that the OCC and the Fed have explained have to go into making a judgment about whether or not a particular condition of a particular loan violates Federal law, whether it's the Fair Housing Act or the Equal Credit Opportunity Act or the Fed's Regulation B.
2: Mr. Waxman, you're talking about lending and, like, depositing those uh, core banking activities. But today, national banks have a lot of incidental — they have have authority to do things incidental to banking — Does your restriction on State enforcement extend to those matters incidental to banking?
8: I answer. I believe that it would if those incidental authorities are, in fact, authorized, approved, and regulated by the OCC, but this case doesn't require you to address it because this is an express power under Section 371A.
0: Thank you, counsel. Uh, five minutes, Ms. Underwood.
1: Um, a couple of four points or so. <laughs> um. To the extent this subpoena is perceived to, or this discovery request, it didn't even proceed to the subpoena stage, is is perceived to be burdensome. State law allows a motion to quash a subpoena for inadequate basis or for harassment. So there's a control in the State courts over anything that's perceived to be excessive. Two, um, States have been enforcing consumer protection and fair lending laws um, since the mid-70s when they were enacted. uh, The Center for Responsive Lending, Amicus Brief, has a a discussion of that history of enforcement. The Conway Affidavit at the Joint Appendix at 152 has a description of New York's enforcement activities between 1975 and 2004. Um, And the Lawyers' Committee for Civil Rights also goes over that history. And they've been enforcing other laws against national banks for even longer, antitrust laws Branching laws, idiosyncratic laws of of various sorts, with no evidence that this has impaired the function of the banks.
5: Mr. Underwood, I, I forgot the response you made in your brief. I know you did make some response to uh, uh, subsection B of section 484. How do you, how do you explain that?
1: I mean the exceptions.
5: Yeah. Not, uh, why, why do they list those exceptions? Uh, um, unless virtu- one one would think that everything is covered.
1: Right. Virtually uh, every exception was enacted to resolve a controversy of, over whether something was visitorial or not. In fact, just as in Guthrie, where this Court said the shareholder suit for bank records was, was not visitorial, or alternatively, if it is, it's covered by the Courts of Justice exception. So, too, each of those exceptions involved a situation where there was a claim, an incorrect claim, but a claim that the action would be banned as
0: visitorial. So Congress now, So what's, ex- why isn't it a, a complete answer to what I agree is a somewhat unusual situation of preempting enforcement but not the substantive law, that it's enforcement that raises the concerns, that the Federal Government thinks the State law is fine, but when you get Attorneys General enforcing it in a particular way, that's what causes the problem. And it, it — I mean, the problem arises in a lot of areas, I- even within the Federal Government. The FBI and DEA have different ways of enforcing that might conflict with each other. Why doesn't that make perfect sense?
1: Well, even without enforcement of state law, OCC would not have exclusive control of enforcement of discrimination laws against national banks. So the idea that state enforcement poses some special problem to interfere with that exclusive control is just a mistake. That's not the way Congress set it up. why, Why
0: is it a mistake? Why can't Congress or the OCC think that that's where the difficulties are going to arise? In in other words, it's kind of a less intrusive approach. They're saying, well, you can have your state law, but we're concerned about enforcement, so we're going to be the ones that enforce it.
1: I didn't mean it was a mistake of policy. I meant it's a mistaken description of the regime Congress created. HUD has administrative enforcement. DOJ has litigation enforcement. This is a federal law. Private parties can enforce federal fair housing law. States can probably enforce federal fair housing law too, as parents patriarch for the victims. The Second Circuit set aside that part of the injunction, the part that barred New York from enforcing federal law.
0: Uh, So your answer is because they have different entities that can enforce it. They sort of in for a penny, in for a pound. If you let anybody else enforce it, you've got to let everybody else enforce it?
1: No, I don't say that. Including I don't the that. entities that
0: historically have targeted national banks?
1: I don't make that argument. What I say is that that is strong evidence that Congress didn't intend to give OCC exclusive control
5: here. I suppose if, uh, if enforcement preemption is the lesser step, we probably ought to revise our jurisprudence uh, so as not to tread any more heavily than we have to upon the states, so that where there is conflict preemption, all we should say is the state law is not invalidated, it is simply not enforceable well right? I mean that would exactly, I mean,
1: enforce
0: no I suppose the question would be not what we think is a good idea, but what Congress has done, and here the oCC has interpreted what Congress has done is to in, make exclusive the OCC regulation only with respect to enforcement? Well — I would suppose you'd thank them for that rather than criticize them for it. Uh,
1: I think that in many ways, leaving the law intact and denying the State the ability to enforce it is more intrusive than simply finding preemption. In any event, Congress made it quite clear that it didn't want preemption.
4: Um, I think my time is —
0: Thank you, Ms. Underwood. The case is submitted.